This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Asian American Studies. I'm Sitara Thabani. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Anne Anlin Cheng, professor of English and African-American literature at Princeton University and author of the brand new book, Ornamentalism. Dr. Cheng, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to this. Well, begin we, before we begin, let me just say congratulations on your book. It's a very stimulating read and also a really important intervention, I think, not only in Asian American studies, but in critical race and feminist studies as well. Thank you. It's a, it's a project that means a lot to me. So I'm, I'm grateful for that comment. <laughs> <laughs> it was a pleasure to read. Can you tell us, how do you explain ornamentalism as a concept and as a framework uh, to your readers and to our listeners today? Well, I usually start by just talking about the word because it's such a, in many ways, such a strange word. Um, it's a word that's, be, I did not make it up. <laughs> it's been around since the 19th century, usually used by art historians to describe the condition of ornamentation and in particular being overly ornamented. But it's a word that I, I can't, I cannot hear it without also hearing its almost near hominific echo of Orientalism as a term, but I seem to be the only one who have noticed that. Um, and um, and in thinking through that, I realize it's not just a idiosyncratic um, <laughs> uh, thing on my part, but rather that actually, in fact, there has been a long philosophic and aesthetic discourse that, from Plato to this day to the twenty first century, that associates and actually, in fact, conflates the so-called oriental or oriental character with over-ornamentation. And so um, what this book tries to do is, one, bring out that deep philosophic connection between the ornamental and the oriental, so that the word, to me, at the very first level, represents the fusion of the ornament and the oriental. Um, so that's what the word... Um, I. It's, the first thing it does is names that connection, that very long philosophic connection. And then what I hope to do with it, what I hope I have done with it, is to offer the word not just as you know a new word to describe an old symptom, but rather as a as naming in particular the processes through which personhood gets named or created or legitimized through ornamental prosthetic gestures. Um, and so this, the word really for me is aiming, it aims to name that transformation, that magic um, that turns a thing into a person. So this book, Ornamentalism, is, you know, so on the first hand, it's about the connection between the oriental and the ornamental. Uh, but more importantly, I want it to be a conceptual lens through which you can think about how the ways in which things have been turned into persons. 
Mm-hmm. I think you make that that uh, case very clearly in in the book with the the broad range of of examples that you provide, ranging from legal history to cinematic production, fashion, and art, and also as you're saying over a very long period of time. Can you take us through this process of how you selected these examples and how some of these connections became obvious to you? So I I would say that the examples or the case studies. Um, did not grow out of the thesis around ornamentalism, but vice versa. Rather, ornamentalism is a concept that I came to after having looked at these cases. Um, so I didn't pick them. They, in many ways, they, they came to me. They're things that have um, been of great deal of interest to me over time. But what I realized also over time is that they are connected in that they are all meditations around this question of artificial personhood and how it is embroiled with ideas of Asiatic femininity. And I also realized, in, in sort of putting together, in, once I have, um, once I realized that connection, I also realized what I wanted very much to do is for the book to be, one, chronological, so that we could see, we could track the development of ornamentalism from the 19th century to the present day. And I also wanted very much to have Uh, case studies from different fields, as you say, law, popular culture, um, art, uh, cinema, etc. Because I think this idea of the artificial person um, can um, uh, sort of uh, manifest itself in all these different realms. And it is in seeing how this figure um, animates these different realms that we see how, in fact, expansive and extensive um, the notion of Asiatic femininity is, even though for most of the mainstream culture and world, it seems like such a marginal topic, you know? Um, And so I'm hoping through precisely the range of the example to show the impact of this marginal figure um, on, in fact, very non-marginal stages. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of tracking these examples over time, uh, can you speak a little bit about the continuities as well as any divergences that you found in how Asiatic femininity uh, is being not only represented, um, not only objectified, but constructed through uh, this kind of ornamentalism? Yes, I think we could see through, um, I said, 19th through the 21st century, is that uh, on the one hand, part of the point is that things don't change, right? That she continues, that this figure continues to be represented as um, exotic, alien, um, thing-like, synthetic, artificial. Um, and but what I think we do see over time is that how um, how this figure, that in spite of all the, I would say, um, disciplinary actions put on this figure, in spite of the objectification, or rather precisely because of the objectification, um, this condition of being an object, instead of being, I think like, you know, as feminists and as race scholars, we often um, shy away from objectification because it is a deeply dehumanizing process, right? Um, But I think what shying away from that has done is actually prevented us from looking at what are the kinds of, lives are actually formed as a consequence of this objectification. Um, and so what I think these um, what I think is interesting about the examples is that they show the they do not um, they're not um, what am I trying to say they're not 
recuperative moments in which I'm not making an argument for um, the ways in which um, Asiatic women, for example, have fought against the subjectification they have. But what I'm interested in is in how these conditions of objectification, or that, or rather, instead of calling these moments objectification and therefore thinking that we have a good handle on it, what we might want to do is see how these moments yield surprising, unexpected other forms of survival, other forms of ontological um, uh, animation. Um, so I think what I try to track through these different examples are, on the one hand, how extremely disciplinary um, ornamentalism can be. On the other hand, also allow to come into view alternative modes of being, alternative modes of survival for those who may not have that much agency. So I think what I try to show is the changing face of ornamentalism itself and all the, I don't try to um, negate the negative consequences of ornamentalism at all, but rather I try to also acknowledge the potential of thinking about different kinds of being in different ways of being in the world, given the confines of ornamentalism. Mm -hmm. I think one thing to to build off of uh, this idea of these different ways of of being and, and these different tensions that emerge, one tension that's really striking throughout these various examples is that between the body and ornament. And, and this tension comes up repeatedly in, in, in your book. Can you expand on the relationship between the two, that is the body and, and the non-organic ornament, and describe the impact that this has on the construction of race? Right. I think it's a tension, not a not a mutually exclusive um, relationship, but but it, but definitely um, a tense one. And I think what's what I want to do is think about the implication between body and ornament. Um, so I'm interested in their interface, right, rather than their mutual exclusivity. But I think one of the um, but one of the major points um, of this book, and that one of the driving um, questions for me is that I think the body or the idea of the body as a corporeal, organic entity has haunted and preoccupied race and feminist scholars for a very long time, for very obvious reasons, because the racialized and gender body has often been in jeopardy, and it is therefore not surprising that it is a source of much um, attention and often just recuperation. But I think one of the things I've been trying to think through is that I've noticed that, well, first of all, that there is um, a a, a tremendously rich, wide, and deep body of theoretical work in feminist thinking around the Black female body. And it is a a repository of, of theoretical work that has really, I think, enriched how we think about the Black female body, um, whether it is, um, you know, most notably, of course, Hortense Spillers talking about the hieroglyphs of the flesh. But what I realized at the same time, and I have learned so much from this, this body of work and engaged with it continuously, but what I also realized is that our attention to talking about the body has actually um, turned our gaze away from a different history of racial embodiment 
one that may not be as rhetorically or even philosophically or imaginatively indebted to the flesh as he has been indebted to non-organic things. Um, and in particular, I'm thinking about Asiatic femininity and how instead of a um, being a, uh, a, an, uh, a creation, a conceptualization that is rooted in the flesh, it is actually very much rooted in artificial, oftentimes almost exclusively ornamental things. Um, and so what I, what I try to do in this project is to say, let's look at how bodies are formed, maybe not based on language of the flesh, but on language of synthetic thingliness. And what would it help, you know, what, what could we, what, what is revealed when we think about racial embodiment in this alternative way? So I'm hoping what I'm offering is a different logic of racial embodiment, one that doesn't displace, but rather complements and engage with an existing body of thinking around racial embodiment as enfleshment. Mm-hmm. I think that segues uh, very well into the next question I'd like to ask. And that is, uh, you begin and end your book in conversation with Black feminism. And I wanted to ask why you felt that was important, both as your starting and finish point. Well, the starting point is because I think in many ways, and for very many people, and certainly including myself, Black feminism and and Black studies have been the models on which other subjects of color have started to think politically, theoretically, socially, culturally, and so forth. So um, even just speaking as as an individual, I know that my thinking around race and gender have been deeply um, indebted to, inspired by, and rooted in African-American studies and Black feminism. So I thought it was very important. But at the same time, as I said, I think that the the, the richness of, of Black feminism and Black studies have actually also um, kind of not been able to address some of the more um, peculiar specul- um, specificities around other subjects of color, the yellow woman, for example. Um, and so... Um, well, so I started there, but I wanted very much to um, also point out another strand, another strand of critical thinking, race thinking, another strand of feminism that should be also engaged with a meaning conversation. Um, and then near the end, I returned to Black feminism in through Tony through a discussion of Toni Morrison's Beloved, because I actually really think that ornamentalism even though if even if it started out as my interest in locating a kind of specificity around the yellow woman, nonetheless can lend itself to having conversation with other women of color, because I think that this, this alternative um, logic of a racial embodiment that I'm speaking of, a racial embodiment that speaks from the abstract, that speaks through the synthetic and the ornamental, um, that is not exclusive to Asiatic femininity, but also I, I think can complement. So that's why um, thinking about black feminism and that's why I come back to Toni Morrison's Beloved because you know it's one of the most um, um, noted texts for its celebration of black female bodies. There's a lovely um, um, homage to the body 
um, by one of the characters in Beloved. But very few people have, have observed that Beloved is also a book that very much um, turns to the aesthetic, the abstract, and ornamental things precisely at moments of profound um, racial and um, corporeal crisis. Um, and so I thought this is a good opportunity to demonstrate the ways in which ornamentalism can also be productive for Black feminist thinking. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So can we turn now to uh, talk about the the multiple subjectivities that we can see uh, being formed through ornamentalism, uh, whereas where you do focus uh, the book on the figure of the Asian woman, uh, uh, you also indicate that ornamentalism plays a role in constructing the modern subject that is this idea of Western personhood, as well as we're seeing in Toni Morrison um, plays a role in, in shaping uh, the construction of, of Black womanhood as well. And so can you please expand on, on this role that ornamentalism plays in constructing multiple forms of subjectivity? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, the generally our idea of modern personhood to say is it's an idea that is based on a whole host of writers, mostly male, <laughs> um, from the Enlightenment, right? Our idea of the modern person of personhood is indebted to notions of an organic, integrated, usually mostly masculine individual, right? Um, an individual full of agency and will and self-determination, um, a Cartesian subject. But what I think that history leaves out is a different genealogy of modern personhood, one that is not indebted to the ideals of the organic, but the inorganic, one that is not integrated, but more um, fragmented and aggregated. And this different genealogy is that, this, which I think the yellow woman exemplifies, um, but is not the only example of, is actually integral to how the West has formed its notions of personhood. So I want to bring to the foreground a different ideal personhood that has been brewing in the heart of Western modernity um, since its beginning, alongside the integrated, you know, um, enlightened, enlightened subject. Um, and it is this idea of personhood as something that is legally and philosophically constructed out of abstract notions and abstract thingliness that is um, of which Asiatic women is but one example, I think a very acute example. But this history, this alternative history, is in fact what allows um, today we think of, you know, um, legal conceptions of personhood. So, for example, our idea of a corporate personhood, you know, so many people and scholars who work, legal scholars in particular, who work around the corporate personhood has written extensively about this. And right? how is it that we can, we have that in the law, we treat a corporate a corporation like a person, 
how do how is it that we treat this incredibly abstract notion um, um, thing as of a corporation as having the rights and the abilities um, and the will of a person? Um, and those scholars will tell you that that's not a new twentieth first century thing that is rooted in the fact that legal personhood has always been constructed around relatively abstract notions. Um, and this is why there's such a, such a language, I think, of ornamentation in the law. We talk of, um, you know, rights, uh, rights that are attached to you, um, things that are, that ornament you, the, uh, the legal ornamentations that construct, that, um, that makes a person, you know, um, be entitled to certain kind of rights. Um, so, um, so part of what I am trying to suggest is that the yellow womanhood or yellow person and the synthetic yellow person is but a particularly acute instantiation of a long history of Western personhood being indebted, in fact, not to this organic integrated person, but to other much less um, organized, less organic forms of being. And so part of my argument is that the yellow woman is not simply important to Western personhood by being its other, by being its opposite, by being excluded, but actually she expresses a particular um, notion of personhood that can be animated through things that is in fact wholly in keeping with the Western construction of personhood from legal realms to cultural realms. It's it's funny. I kept hearing Mitt Romney in my head when I was reading your text. Oh, tell, me, tell me how so. Well, you have to tell me how so. Well, this idea about corporations are people, and mm. and this this sliding or jumping between uh, what is and is not an uh, inanimate object, what is or is not a person, and this term object life that you keep uh, introducing into the conversation around this figure is is really fascinating. It is kind of an amazing, um, I mean, I, I think, you know, the whole idea of corporate personhood is just an amazing um, example of the ways in which legal personhood is um, constructed um, and mediated through a host of issues that has nothing to do with the biological, you know, or the organic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to say, it's the same of race, right? I think we, most people, when they think about race, they, they think about it in biological, corporeal terms. But racial differentiation, racial embodiment is as much constructed out of abstract notions as it is out of, you know, biology. I mean, I think that the pretense is that it's about biology, but it, frankly, I think it's almost never about biology. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and and I think you you show that very well in in bringing together these uh, various seemingly contradictory but not really aspects that come together in in racial formation. And another one of those uh, tense relationships, perhaps, that you reveal is that between aesthetics and violence. Uh, could you expand on that relation? Yes, I think if you think about the history of Western art from Titian's Rape of Lucrezia to um, Picasso's Guernica, you will realize that if there's one thing, if there's one tension that Western art has been struggling with, 
um, for century. It is this tension between this. It is precisely the meeting, not the tension, but the meeting between aesthetics and violence. Um, and it's an it's a it's an ethical question. You know, what does it mean to aestheticize violence? And conversely, what does it mean to see the violence of aesthetics? And this is a very large, you know, um, question. And I think this is a question that is particularly acute and has particularly material consequences for the Asiatic woman whose form of denigration in the West is slightly, is peculiar, right? It's different than, let's say, Black femininity in that Asiatic femininity and femininity has so long been aestheticized. And, um, and what's been very hard for a lot of people, I think general public, to comprehend is, well, what's so bad about, about being aestheticized? <laughs> and of course, feminists have been you know, explaining for a long time what's wrong with that. Um, but I think this, um, but I think having a feminist theory that can account for this particular form of denigration its consequences as well as its you know byproduct is really critical you know so when hortense spillers tells us that black female flesh is ungendered because he has been excluded from the realm of gender we might think about asiatic femininity as having a different kind of relationship to to, gen, to, to, to the gender system, right? Like in one ways, in some ways, she is hyper, hyper gender, right? Because she is like the ultimate, um, you know, ideal version of femininity by being passive, you know, erotic, et cetera. Um, but that is a form of, in, of being included in the gender system that is extremely excluding, right? Um, so I think that... Um, this question of the aesthetics and violence is a very large ongoing question for Western art and cultural uh, and culture. Um, but I, what I try to do in my book is to distill it um, around the figure of the Asiatic woman as a particularly powerful example of how we might think through the meaning of aesthetics and violence. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think on on the question of aesthetics, but then building off of that as well, another thing that's really striking about the examples that you uh, study in the book is the relationship to temporality and how they either appear to be uh, fairly antiqu antiquated ideas about Asian femininity, and I'm thinking of uh, the pictures of of kind of the traditional dress, or or even mm -hmm. uh, the the "Quote unquote ancient objects that get uh, or, or ornaments that are are used as examples here, or this extreme kind of futurity and looking to the cyborgs and and kind of the post human idea as well, and right. and so could you speak a little bit about those two different um, temporal directions in which this figure is is being drawn? Uh, well, thank you for that question because that's actually one of the one of the mini so, so you know mini question got me started on this project. And one of them, as I said earlier, was how come no one's ever noticed the oriental aspect of ornamentalism? <laughs> uh, so that's a further. But the other question I had was I started to notice, um, I, well, I just, I was, I wonder why is it that the Asiatic woman can be not alternately, but simultaneously so regressive? Um, you know, the, 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 
um, you know, the, the, oh, I'm, I'm having a mind blip, <laughs> um, the geisha, you know, mm-hmm. figure, for example, and, or seeing oftentimes certainly, you know, in science fiction and in the world that people now call techno orientalism, she saw often the, 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 the you know, the sign of the, the, the cyborg. And in fact, a perfect, um, um, example of how this two temporality is collapsed into one is in, um, that recent remake, Hollywood remake, live action remake of Japanese anima called Ghost in the Shell with Scarlett Johansson. And in that movie, they have these um, geisha who turn out to be robots. You know, the face, get re- the mask get removed, they re- they're, they're robots. And it's a perfect, I think, um, instantiation, a perfect example uh, or manifestation or reenactment of this paradox of you know, the Asian woman as both atavistic and futuristic. Um, and so this is actually, and I think one of the, um, one of the answers to why is this the case has to do with ornamentalism, with the fact that the Asiatic woman was always seen as somewhat machine-like from the get-go, even when she was being seen as atavistic. And my example was that is from um, the 19th century, a very famous, um, show that was on exhibit in New York and other major U.S. cities was a show on exhibit simply known as The Chinese Lady. And this was a young woman, very young, around 16 or 15, who was imported um, by um, basically what turned out to be circus people yeah. <laughs> um, to the U.S. And she was sort of touted around as a, she, she, she sat in a sort of living tableau. Um, and so, and she had, you know, very, as you said, very traditional Chinese dress on, um, and she's surrounded by, you know, Chinese ornaments, teapots, paintings, scrolls, things like that. Um, and, um, but so everyone saw this as just, you know, that, you know, obviously a kind of, you know, a, a perfect example of the old school, you know, the sort of classic civilization, the ancient, almost decadent civilization of China. And that's what she represented. But um, I also try to point out that that tableau is very mechanistic. It is very constructed. Um, all the elements in the tableau are often, like, for example, the, the China on display, they were actually not, you know, real Chinese antiques. They were sort of Victorian, you know, <laughs> uh, tea set duplications. Um, and so... Even in that very so-called, you know, um, old image is all this sort of global, very modern global um, exchange of things and thingliness. Um, and, um, and so, so yeah, I think that, you know, one answer to how come she's both is because she's always been both. Mm-hmm. Well, after reading your book, I find it uh, remarkable that that people haven't been talking about the connection between the two because you just make it so convincing and and reveal it to be such a strong connection between Orientalism and ornamentalism. Thank you. I hope I hope at least can invite others to have conversation about this. Absolutely. And and so finally, to close, uh, can you share with us what you might be working on now or what's next? So I have been working on a um, a second project that looks at the intersection of race studies, animal studies, and critical food studies. Um, and so my my 
little bridge to that is that I'm currently working on a, a paper. I like I can't think of the next big project; it's too scary. So, <laughs> so I think of my next paper. So the next paper, um, and actually, um, is about the idea of swarming, and it's actually a very for me a very good bridge because. Um, ornamentalism is about the profusion of ornaments, of details. And this idea of profusive details um, is a kind of swarming, which then leads me to thinking about the animal um, and, um, and so forth. So I'm writing now um, a piece about um, starting with, and again, you can see I'm moving over the place, but I'm starting with William Morris and how he conceptualized um, design in his work, his theories of design and how his theories of design have, um, as you can imagine, um, or not surprisingly, very national and gendered and racial um, parameters. And I want to connect that to two more contemporary artists. One is a poet, Sally Wen Mao, who wrote a, um, her first book of poems called a Mad Honey Symposium, which I think is about a kind of swarming. I think the more William Morris's um, wallpapers are swarmings. Um, and finally, um, I want to think about the installation work of a contemporary artist called Anika E, who has been working with these amazing installations that um, one of which is called Immigrant Caucus, that from far away, it looks like a motherboard, like a black and white, technological, um, beautiful, architectural, abstract, electronic piece, you know, motherboard. And you get up close to it and it turns out it is a giant ant farm. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, so anyway, these are all just interesting, provocative examples through which I want to sort of think and theorize the idea of swarming as um, a provision of detail, animation of abstract thing, but also its relationship to um, to um, to race subjects, immigrants were obviously always discussed as a kind of swarming. Mm -hmm. So that's my next project and what I'm moving towards. Oh, fantastic! Well, I, I look forward to it coming out. Thank you, and and thank you again for taking the time to speak with us today about your new book, Ornamentalism. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Thank you so much for spending the time and letting me talk about this book. Of course. <laughs>